Hi guys, today's episode features mentions of suicide, sexual assault, self-harm and struggling with various mental health disorders, so this is your trigger warning. Thank you. Hey guys, welcome back to Penis Underrated. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Ella. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about mental health. We've got in some interviews. We're talking to one of our very close friends who struggles with mental health, which I'm sure you can all relate to. We're talking to a mental health expert. And we're just kind of um, exploring the fetishization of mental health um, and why it is like that. So as always, we asked you guys, our listeners, um, to give your opinions on it. So let's jump right into the polls. So the first question we asked was, do you struggle with mental health? And we had a 90% of majority of our listeners struggling with mental health. To be honest, I'm not surprised by the outcome, but it's still like quite shocking to see in numbers. I think that leads on to the obvious point that a lot of people initially would think struggling with mental health refers solely to the people that have been diagnosed with a mental illness who yeah. face battles on a very relentless daily basis. But if your outlook on life isn't positive and it hinders you sometimes because of how negative it is, then that's a struggle and it is completely valid in itself. So I'm glad to see that the poll appears to reflect that idea. And, you know, we asked our listeners, how does this manifest into their like daily lives? And a lot of people were saying self-harm. Um, you know, they're really anxious all the time. Things that, you know, shouldn't really be normal, but we're seeing on a large scale, specifically in our very young age group. I wanted to talk about this because a lot of people I've spoken to are all like, oh my god, why did I struggle so much age 12? Why was it worse mm. for me age 12, 13 than it is for me age 16 plus now? And I really think that it's a really weird limbo in that you're old enough to understand the ways in which life can be negative and the ways in which your emotions can be negative, but you're still so young that you don't know how to cope with it. You are not equipped yeah. with the appropriate coping mechanisms to deal with it or to balance it out. So you kind of in a way, if you're not inclined to open up, which a lot of young people aren't, you sort of end up going really off the rails. And it's a scary time when you don't know what to do. And I think it's probably even scarier when mental health resources are not always readily available in that you have to have the guts to take it upon yourself to go a little bit out mm. of your way. And I strongly believe that young people, not just young people, but everyone, but especially young people who are just coming to terms with the way that they feel, should be offered so much more support, whether that be in school, outside of school, within the home. I just think it's really important that we monitor young people because it's very easy for them to go under the radar on the assumption that, oh, they're too young, they, they don't understand properly yet. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially because we're at such a young age, and like you said, we don't have the proper tools to cope with it. A lot of people seem to turn to like self-harm as a way to kind of validate the feelings that they're having. And this is when it becomes really dangerous because people don't understand like the full severity of it. Mm -hmm. And they kind of feel that I don't deserve help unless I'm at a certain point in life where it's you know really bad to the point where I have to be like hurting myself and um, I think we see this a lot like especially at a young age because that is what we're thinking we're thinking we have to be either perfectly healthy and fine or at a breaking point and that's kind of what self-harm signifies and so people feel like okay I deserve help because I'm hurting myself like that's the point I'm at so I need the help it's kind of just you know a way of validating yourself and your emotions at an age where it's really hard to comprehend what you're feeling. In my opinion the normalization of self-harm whilst that's really helpful to the people that do struggle with it also comes with a torrent of problems because from what I've seen around the, the people around me, it kind of opens the door to self-harm and other harmful coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms in quotation marks, because that's not what they are as options. Mm. It opens the door to them and it's like 
because it's so normalized in media because it's so normalized around you your young impressionable brain automatically makes the connection between struggling and dealing with it or what you perceive to be dealing with it but then only when you look back we're in a bit more of a clear mindset can you comprehend fully the damage that you were doing to yourself and how self-destructive it really really was and I completely understand that it's not it's not a question of just stopping because that's not how this works. We're going to get into this more later with the interview with Caroline, the mental health professional. But what starts off as something you're trying out as a coping mechanism because you think, as as we were saying earlier, it's validating or you think it's the appropriate way to validate the way you feel very quickly becomes a horrible addiction that so many people struggle with to such, such a grave extent. Absolutely. And going back to the, you know, the fact that it's over normalized as, you know, especially to like our younger community think this is what they're seeing, you know, it's being normalized, that's great and everything. But, you know, we took to the polls, we said, do you think mental health has become over normalized or in other words, romanticized? And 91% of our listeners said yes, Mm -hmm. which I agree with. I think, yes, there's definitely benefits to normalizing mental health. And I think not our generation, well, yeah, our generation, our generation before us has definitely influenced much older generations when you know mental health would be much more taboo like they would never speak about mm. it it'd be unheard of like what you're crazy like words like insane crazy would be thrown around um and that's great that we're normalizing that but then again like you said it kind of makes us jump to those quote-unquote coping mechanisms when really there are so many other options of like dealing with mental health I think when conversations about mental health are taken out of the context of purely medical and analytical perspectives it becomes dangerous because as great as it is to validate the way you feel and completely understand that you are not alone and there is a community of people that will support you if that's not done in a purely positive way there are so many dangerous things um as sophie's going to mention in the interview which we insert at some point in this episode trauma bonding is a real thing where you kind of leech onto each other's traumas and it's very self-destructive you encourage each other self-destructive behaviors not just trauma bonding also making light of things that are actually quite serious and as great as it is to joke and to cope with your trauma in the way that you can Mm. if the whole of society starts to look at mental health as a joke then i'm sure you can imagine how completely dangerous that is yeah and a lot of the responses we got were saying apps like tiktok have over normalized it now people post whatever triggering things they want people are self-diagnosing when it's not necessary and people romanticize it and i think there's two different aspects of media romanticizing mental illness we have yes romanticizing mental illness but we also have fetishizing mental illness and i think what we have what's imperative to understand with fetishizing mental illness is what we call sex marketing and basically there's nothing inherently wrong with sex marketing it's basically you know you see it in your coca-cola adverts you see it in the beer adverts you know they'll just get a girl in a bikini to run around hold a Mm. bottle be like buy our product you know shampoo they'll allude to something sexual but it will never be in like explicitly sexual but what that does is just that gets the consumer to buy their product and it's just a way of marketing but what we see is a lot in film and um, tv shows media things like tiktok we see this mixture of sex marketing and romanticization becoming a fetishization where people see mental health or mental illness as desirable and attractive, something they can turn into a fetish. It's like, it's things like girls saying, oh my god, I want a dark, like, um, disturbed boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I and it's like the white knight complex, which is basically a man just saying, oh, I want a dance in distress, I, a distress, I want a depressed girl to come and save when you know that's what we've been seeing things like skins things like you know with Effie and everything because yes I guess the point of the show was to show you know her 
her pretty privilege let her get away with you know half the shit she does in the show which obviously isn't okay but then I think a lot of people miss that and skip straight to oh my god Effie and they romanticize her mental illness and make it something they want to become and shows like shows like 13 Reasons Why, while the sole purpose of it was to bring light to mental illness, it kind of flipped around its head, did the opposite effect and simply, um, you know, fetishised it, romanticised it, made it desirable instead of actually looking at the ugly parts of it, which is kind of what we want to get into with Sophia's interview, where we kind of talk about, you know, we kind of pick and choose what what we like about mental illness. We pick like we pick the pretty parts, we pick the parts that, you know, we're attracted to, like in films, they'll they'll have you know in American horror story you know between Tate and Violet's relationship when he's basically just you know he's a rapist he's a school shooter and we have girls pandering after him saying oh my god I want a boyfriend like Tate I want a boyfriend like Tate and you know there's a scene where he's like kissing herself harm scars going oh my god you're so beautiful you're so beautiful instead of actually focusing on why yes they both have mental illness and it's an incredible show but people skip over the important details that this is something not to be desired and with the use of sex marketing it's a way that we can feel you know attracted to this but not feel guilty for being attracted to it because it's not something we should be attracted to it's elusive but not explicitly wrong because there's nothing there is nothing explicit about it that's the whole point so sort of the implications of that they're just implications they're not concrete they're not concretely Mm -hmm. right they're not concretely wrong and we were talking about 13 reasons why but i honestly i just think it's one of the most damaging things that has ever Mm -hmm. been done in light of mental health awareness in quotation marks because there's literally been teens there's been adults that have reenacted the suicide with the tapes and Mm -hmm. not only is that such an incredibly tragic thing it's also very objectively it's not constructive at all because instead of confronting the mental illness it's like almost laying it on many different things it's addressing the problems Mm -hmm. whilst not doing anything about it and as well as the obvious very triggering self-harm suicide themes that were handled very badly um there's also overlying themes of like of rape of glory of glorifying that and it's just the most toxic show i've ever seen like I was reading an article about it and I'll see if I can find it at some point. But what it was saying is that before Netflix aired the show, they were talking to a mental health group about how to approach it most appropriately. And apparently all of the advice was completely discarded and none of it was (laughs) evident in the filming, which doesn't surprise me at all. And I think we can actually see that in statistics because, um, you know, 13 Reasons Why was associated with a 28.9% increase in suicide rates among US youth ages between 10 and 17 Wow. 10 and 17 in the month of April 2017, which was obviously following the show's release. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's in media when we, you know, kind of, we gloss over it, we make it look pretty, and then we put a facade of saying, oh, this is for mental health awareness. Is it really? Or are you just making it appealing so you get more viewers? To me, mental health awareness sort of discusses coping mechanisms and normalisation in a positive way, in a unifying way. And whilst it is so important to acknowledge the ugly parts of mental health struggles, because it's not sunshine and daisies, despite what, you know, you, you want your manic pixie dream girlfriend to, to portray yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. But that doesn't mean you have to show graphic and triggering scenes making this pain look attractive because the whole point of it is that it is pain and that it is awful. So the moment you try and flip the lens on that, that is a horrible juxtaposition and it's really damaging. 
going back to you know picking and choosing what we want to romanticize this is something i see on tiktok a lot people are very happy to sit back and say normalize mental illness like normalize um being depressed but they don't want to normalize you know as soon as, soon as it comes to something like a disgusting symptom of depression quote unquote disgusting like i think it's um the two-week mark of not showering is supposed to be a sign of depression. You know, untidy rooms, things that we kind of confuse with laziness, mm-hmm. especially in teens. We see, you know, we see it as laziness when really they're symptoms of depression. But that is the stuff we don't want to romanticise because why? It's, it's ugly. We don't want to see it. But pretty skinny girls with cuts on their arms and cuts on their stomach panning in on movies, that's a sex appeal. And then we're mixing two very contrasting themes of self-harm suicide and you know nudity and sex and it's very conflicting and confusing to the viewer if you're not fully understanding the gravity of what's happening and that's why these films are rated mature but obviously 10 year olds are seeing it when's that ever stopped anyone you know you can just lie about your age when you're logging into netflix or whatever and at what point, who's going to stop you from consuming content that is actually going to be very triggering to an impressionable mind? Essentially, these symptoms of mental health are so much more common than we think they would be. So in light of this, we interviewed our good friend Soph. In the spirit of open mental health conversation, we thought a great idea would be to introduce some guests so they can talk about their real experiences. We can get different inputs and we just thought that would be a really great way to continue season two. So today we are joined by our friend Soph. Soph, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Soph. Um, so, so regarding your experience with mental health, when do you think was the first time you realised you needed to seek help for your mental health? And like, what was that experience like for you? Um, I was about 11 or 12, like in year seven. And um, I was trigger warning. I was self-harming at that. And my friends knew. And um, two of them took it upon themselves to tell my head of year without asking me first which was pretty traumatic in itself. It felt like an invasion, like an invasion of privacy, I cannot lie. Um, but they told them without, they told her without asking me. Um, so then like she pulled me over in the middle of break and just had a long conversation about it. And basically at the end of it, she told me that I had to tell my mum or else she was going to do it for me. Um, and obviously I didn't want that to happen. So that night I went home and I told my mum um but I under exaggerated it a lot because obviously you don't want to tell something like that to your mum because it would scare her a lot and I didn't want to worry her you know so then I told her and the school didn't even know that I had told my mum but they never brought it up again like they didn't, so they didn't know, follow up on it no they didn't know my mum knew and they didn't tell her either so for all they knew she had no idea but they just left it like it was nothing do you think that ended up having a positive effect in the long run like telling your mom or do you think it was worse off I don't think it was worth it at the time I'm not gonna lie because at that point it really wasn't that bad and it was sort of just unnecessary stress for her but and I wasn't ready to tell her that's the thing but I felt pressurized to mm-hmm. or else it was basically a threat yeah. so I would say I would say negative but then I mean in the short term it was negative but it was something that had to be said because it's not like it stopped then. How do you wish the situation was handled? And if you were, if you could change it, would you have handled it differently? Well, I mean, I would have changed it in that if I, if they made me tell my mum, then I would have wanted them to at least make an effort to make it better because that was years ago, and it another incident like happened like that happened again this year, 
and they just haven't done anything. Like there was a four year gap between those instances and they did nothing. Like if you're going to make me, you know, freak out my mum like that and have to tell her something that she doesn't want to hear, then at least make it worth it, you know, because there was no support. So, Soph, why do you think you started self-harming in the first place? And at such a young age? It was weird. It was sort of because I I had known people around me who had done it. And when I first found out about it, it honestly shook me to the core. Like, it just seemed like the most terrible, Mm -hmm. like, result of, like, last resort of something to do. But then it's a weird thing. It's like, once you do it, it changes your perspective on it a lot. And that, I think, is very dangerous. Do you think the normalisation of these sort of aspects of mental health can be more damaging than positive? Well, I think maybe recently because people are, you know, less ashamed of their scars and all stuff like that. And instead of using it as almost like something to shame people about, people are more like proud of it. I think parts of that is good because it sort of brings people together in that. Well, I mean, the dangerous part of that is that you could trauma bond and that is not good at all. But um, I don't know. I think it's good to not be ashamed of it. And the fact that there's scars shows that it's the past. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's good. But then also there is also the aspect that like it has become so normalized that I think it becomes less of a last resort. It's sort of something that happens yeah. before normal. Do you know what I mean? Well, not normal, but then it's supposed to. Not even supposed yeah. to. Well, fuck. <laughs> I feel like the problem is some people feel like their mental health or like their mental illness needs to be a certain point of badness to be able to seek help. And I feel like self-harm kind of validates that and being like, oh, look, no, I do need help because I'm self-harming rather than like nipping it in the bud and getting help before it is to that point. Yeah, 100%. But then it's also a point that no one should get to anyway, because the fact of it is, I don't know if if you want to call it a coping mechanism. It's not. It's mutilation and you get nothing out of it. Do you think the portrayal of mental illness in media affects how like we have our attitude towards mental health? And does did it does it affect your own attitude towards your mental health? Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if this is just the algorithm that I'm on, but the stuff that I see about it is more like sort of making light on the past of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't really get that many things that are like people saying how depressed they are, like that they're in it at the moment. But I mean, the thing is, I don't know if I can make a fair judgment on that because I don't have a very wide sort of like range of input about it. Yeah. You know, but But then it's also like, it's interesting to see like what comes up in other people's like algorithms. Because I was talking to my friend the other day and she was saying like, all I see is like videos of people being like, I'm so depressed, like I'm so sad. Like, but I'm like, I never get those kind of videos. And like, it's interesting that you're getting videos of people out on the other side of it being like, oh, look, this is the past. Like, I'm out on the other side versus like other people who are getting like in the thick of it versus like, you know, like those Tumblr age stuff when it was being like overly romanticised. And I still think it is being overly romanticised, but I think we're romanticising, like we pick and choose what we want to romanticise rather than like the ugly bits of mental illness. Yeah, 100%. And I think a massive part of that is um, eating disorders. Yeah, it's insane, like, I I feel like that, I don't get very much stuff about mental health that isn't sort of taking the piss out of it. But I occasionally I will get videos saying like, oh, I wish I was as skinny as these girls. 
And it's like, why? Why are you putting that out there? Like, it's hurting you posting it and anyone else who sees that. But then I guess, it. what if it's their outlet, you know? It's it's a hard thing to make a... Do- I don't know. Is it an outlet or are they just, like, projecting as a way of, That's like, va- again, validating what they feel? Because then in the comments section, yeah. people being like, oh my god, no, you're so beautiful, you don't need to look like this. Or it's people getting angry saying, stop putting this on the internet, what is wrong with you? Because people are realising, like... Thin is coming back and it's like infiltrating spaces like TikTok when it shouldn't be. Yeah, 100%. I agree. But on the flip side, I see a lot of people shaming people for expressing their struggles with mental health, saying stuff like, oh my God, you're such a snowflake, etc, etc. Yeah, the thing is about that, I feel like the people who say that are sort of in the minority because as a generation now, everyone's changed a lot around the sort of stigma around mental health. It's become a lot more... I mean, it's an open conversation now, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even more than that, like it would be maybe more taboo than it is now. Like being open about mental health is very normal. And I feel like the people who don't support it or don't show support to people who are opening up about it, which is a big thing in itself. It's just sort of like, why are you being a dickhead? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's just people who go out of their way to say that. It's like, your dad doesn't love you, does he? He's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, mine has too. Like, you know, not coming back. But there's, you know, you can learn from stuff like that and just not hate on people on the internet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, because it's not like they can control it, you know? So, Soph, how do you think your mental health affects your day-to-day life? Okay, well, I mean, like, the sort of the sort of issues, right, if, if that's what we're going to call it, that I have with mental health is, like, I, I'm not depressed or anything. Like, I've learned how to cope over the years, you know, still here and all that. Um, but it's sort of like, basically, I have, like, symptoms of extreme stress, which, like, manifests itself mm-hmm. into derealisation. And I'm sure you guys know what that is. Like, a lot of people have it. But I don't know, because mine's pretty intense. And it, talking about day-to-day life it's it's hard because you're really zoned out a lot of the time and I think like I'll have a I'll be having a really good day with my mates and just like having a really good time but I'll be so out of it the whole time that I won't remember it and that Mm -hmm. it's it's a really weird feeling but it just annoys me because I feel like I'm not getting everything out of life you know because if you can't remember it then it's like it didn't happen when you're like experiencing this kind of derealization can you kind of like explain what it is to people who don't really know like is it in the moment you're experiencing and then later like it's just wiped from your brain or is it just in the moment you kind of feel detached from reality it's sort of like you're running on autopilot and you don't have complete control over your actions and what you're saying and you're just not very aware of what's around you it's it's like looking at the world through glass or like you're sitting back a level and you're just watching stuff happen in front of you and there's no control or anything like that what's something you wish more people understood about derealization maybe in relation to the fact that not a lot of people are aware of it when they think of mental illness they kind of think of depression and anxiety and disclude other things is there anything you wish more people knew i think a really important thing that people don't remember is that you have seen about two percent of a person you think you knows life and you see them as the person they are today but you don't know in reality you barely know anything about them and that's quite a scary thing I think because everyone is very you know inside their own heads 
and you actually will never know anyone else properly. It's it's just impossible. You you think you know people, which I guess is enough, you know, because the only perspective you have is your own and your perception of them is important. But people have to be more gentle, I think. Earlier you were talking a lot about how it's important to learn, to realise that there are very unhealthy ways to deal with the way you are feeling. So in your opinion, what are some healthy and good ways to cope with intense mental struggles? I think the thing that really helped me was I gave myself no choice but to find something that I was so like passionate about that it would make me want to like keep going. Like you have like there is literally no choice when you get to a certain point, you have to find something that gives you a purpose, like something you love. Mine was music at the time and you just have to love it. Make it worthwhile. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm not really sure which philosopher said this, but it was a philosopher and I can't remember which one. But the whole the whole point that the whole thing about how our life does not have like inherent purpose. Like we have no like purpose when we're put on this planet. And our lives are just a constant suffering and misery with little moments of happiness and passion that make all of that worthwhile. A hundred percent. And I think this, I don't, the thing that I've learned personally is that you've never experienced happiness without feeling the lowest you possibly could. Yeah, it sounds cliche, but you can't know happiness without sadness. And it is true. Have you got any like final anecdotes or comments or thoughts or anything you want to share in relation to the conversation? I think as uncomfortable it is to hear, the only person who can pull you out of a dark time is yourself. Like people can support you to the most of their ability. But at the end of the day, if if you have the willpower, you can do anything. Like it sounds so disgusting and like just uh, but it is actually true. Like because nothing anyone else like people can try, you know, and people will support yeah. you and that means everything. But at the end of the day, it's your head. It has yeah. to come from within you. Exactly. Exactly. If you don't want to get better, if you don't want help, you're not going to get better and you're not going to get any help. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Zoe, for talking to us. That was really yeah, so cool. So Thank you. <laughs> it was really fun. I'm so glad we did that interview with Soph. How'd you find it? I thought it was really great. She was a natural in front of the microphone, which was a, was a benefit for us. But I really <laughs> liked how honest it was and how I, it just felt really relatable. It felt like something that a lot of people would experience. And yeah. the, the talk about the depersonalization um, aspect of her anxiety, I thought was really great too, because that's a symptom that a lot of people overlook as well. So this is something I really want to talk about because one of our listeners brought up in the polls and they said society seeks to resolve mental health problems but never find the root cause of them because they can profit off of it. This is something I'm really passionate about and I'm going to reference the work of Mark Fisher here. I've been reading a lot of recently but essentially what he said was that the mental health plague in our society suggests that instead of this system being, you know, functional and working, it's actually inherently dysfunctional and the cost of it appearing to work is extremely high i.e. how has it become acceptable that our society and its stresses just harbours so much mental illness and distress? That's not normal. That's not something that's inevitable. And the way we handle mental health is largely the cause of the reason why there is so much cause to do so. Definitely. And back to that comment that someone said in the polls, you know, that they can seek profit off of it. Um, You know, naturally, commodifying mental illness is easy and, you know, we can make profit off of it. Completely. You see a lot of pharmaceutical companies saying we can cure you with our, you know, our SSRIs or, and don't get me wrong, whilst there's a difference between taking necessary medication to balance hormonal imbalances or whatever, once again, 
marketing has identified a pain point for a lot of people and they're using it to shove products shove consumerism down your throat sell you things that you don't need to be sold whether that be the illusion of self-help whilst failing to recognize that them and the systems that enable them to keep running are the completely the reason that so many people are suffering exactly because it's much easier to try and cure the symptoms rather than cure the cause which obviously mark fisher has diagnosed as capitalism that's exactly what he was saying in summary Mark Fisher actually says, if it is true, for instance, that depression is constituted by low serotonin levels, what still needs to be explained is why particular individuals have low levels of serotonin. This requires a social and political explanation, and the task of repoliticizing mental illness is an urgent one if the left wants to challenge capitalist realism. So whether you're on the left or not, I think it's a very, very valid observation that it is crucial to repoliticize mental illness and look at the social conditions that it's left to be harboured in. In light of this... We spoke to a mental health professional. We asked her some questions that you guys had, some questions that we had, and, you know, coming from a much more experienced perspective than us. Hi, Caroline. Would you mind introducing yourself and what your job entails? Hi, my name is Caroline Divner. I am a consultant clinical psychologist, and I work with children and young people who have mental health needs or mental health disorders. Um, So my job entails quite a range of things. Um, So I work with young people directly, Um, so I meet with them, talk to them and find out what um, their concerns are, what their goals are and what they'd like to change. And then we would work together on understanding um, their difficulties and coming up with what we call a formulation. And then I would work with them on an intervention or a therapy to help support them in reaching their goals. Um, I also work with parents, um, sometimes um, helping parents to understand their children's needs, um, sometimes helping the parents to help the children. And I work with the wider services as well, um, so schools, um, children's services, including social workers um, and other health services. So quite a lot. And because I'm a consultant clinical psychologist, I also supervise other psychologists doing um, their work and involved in recruitment and development of our local CAM services. Perfect. Thank you so much. You were talking a bit about um, goals there. So what what is an example of a sort of goal that you might set somebody, a patient? So um, I wouldn't set the goal. I would want the young person to come up with the goal themselves. Sometimes that's done jointly with um, family or other people um, about what they also think would be helpful for the young person. But it's really important that the child or young person has um, identified that goal for themselves. Um, And it could be a really wide range of things depending on what their needs are. Sometimes it might be about attending school. Sometimes it might be about um, reducing compulsive behaviours around OCD or something like that. Sometimes it might be improving eating. So it could be a real wide range of things, but something that the young person is focused on and that will contribute to their quality of life um, being better. Um, How do you think this has changed like with COVID-19? Um, so there's been quite a lot of changes brought about. So for young people, some of the things that we might have been working on, they just can't do at the moment because life is so restricted. Um, so 
for example, um, children with social anxiety, we'd be working on helping them to um, socialise more and developing their relationships and doing that in a way that they can manage the anxiety around it. But if you're in a situation where you can't meet up with people, that's really difficult to do. Um, and if you're not in school, so we're trying to be creative and think about other ways people do that. And that might be virtually or something like that. But there's some things that just have to be put on hold. We've also seen a big increase in not in the number of referrals, but in the type of referrals we get. So there's been a big increase in eating disorder referrals and young people who at the point they're referred their eating disorder has become very serious. And we're also seeing more um, urgent referrals coming in. Um, and we don't really know why that is, but it might be because one theory might be because young people haven't wanted to seek help whilst um, we've been in this pandemic. And then, so I guess that that's a sort of an important thing to, to make sure everybody knows that they still seek help if they need it. I mean, I guess that kind of lends on to our next question. At what point would you advise someone to seek um, you know, professional help for their mental well-being? Um, I suppose it depends what you mean by professional help, because there's all sorts of professionals who are involved in looking after young people's mental health. Um, so, you know, from teachers who hopefully every child has at least one teacher that they feel comfortable and safe talking to. So I would say that you don't need to reach a certain point to seek that help. You know, if you've got a trusted teacher, go and tell them if you've got any worries at all about the way you've been feeling, then go and talk to them. Um, it might be a bit different at the point that you need a specialist service such as CAMS, um, because then you, you, it would probably be more at the point where um, the difficulties are really impacting on you. So Maybe um, if a young person is not eating or sleeping well, not able to function and do the normal things that they do, like get on with their schoolwork or they're not meeting up with friends or talking to friends, then um, that's the time that you really need to talk to somebody about it and get some help. And of course, if there was any risk to somebody um, if you were feeling unsafe, had thoughts or were actually harming yourself, then definitely that is a time to talk to somebody and get some help. So do you observe a stigma around actually asking for help? And if so, why would you think that is? I think that this has changed. So I think going back some years, there was more of a stigma around mental health. And I think that there's a lot more education around it. There's a, a lot more in the media about it. I mean, I think things like... Um, Prince William and um, the Duchess of Cambridge getting involved and sort of publicity that they do, I think is really helpful and has definitely reduced the stigma. But I think that there is still a stigma for some types of mental health disorders. So quite often they're talking about things like anxiety and depression. So I think the stigma for that has gone down. But there's obviously lots and lots of different types of mental health difficulties and some of the very serious ones um, which might um, so for example psychosis where where it's maybe a bit more hard for people to understand I think there is still stigma around those kind of difficulties which I'd like to see reduced um, so I guess what I'm saying is it, it varies depending on what a person's difficulty are and, and um, who their peer group is and also what culture 
somebody comes from in some cultures there's more of a stigma around it um, than others what are your opinions on self-diagnosis do you view it as harmful and I know a lot of people don't like self-diagnosis do you think that's an appropriate outlook anything like that um so self-diagnosis is I think it's interesting so sort of as a general rule I think self-diagnosis is not helpful and I'll explain why so Diagnosis is a way of understanding somebody's difficulties. Um, and in terms of mental health disorder, it's not a test whether it's right or wrong. So it involves looking at a, a collection of symptoms. Um, but it also involves taking into account everything that they, the young person's development and their experiences. And it involves ruling out other things. So I think that one of the risks of self-diagnosis is that you might, um, there might actually be a different explanation for your difficulties. Um, and you might not know that unless you go and talk to somebody who's an expert in that field and they actually are thinking about everything. The other risk with it, I think, is that if, if people self-diagnose, you may be doing it um, for um, a lesser level of difficulties for somebody else who has got that diagnosis and in some ways that then can um, make other people's difficulties seem less important does that I don't know if I'm um, that makes sense but so for example there's sort of people often say that I'm uh, a bit OCD I don't know if you've heard people Mm, say that and they might very well have some kind of things that are quite ritualistic or the way that they need to do things um, or or be very ordered or, or have some superstitious thinking. But somebody with a diagnosis of OCD is, would be really severely impacted by that. And so I think there's just that danger in that it lessens us taking those people seriously or it lessens the need for funding or for good interventions for those people who have uh, the, the diagnosis. However, bearing all that in mind, I do think it's really helpful that um, young people are a lot more educated these days about mental health difficulties. And I think it's great to have that awareness and to think about these things and to recognise sort of, you know, patterns of the way you do things or certain situations that might make you feel anxious. And then that can lead to there's loads of great self-help out there of things that might help with that. So I'd say yes to sort of being aware, researching into it, looking at self-help, but no to sort of saying, I have this diagnosis, unless you've actually been to see an expert around it and and thought about the whole big picture. Yeah, definitely. Um, on our Instagram polls, we were asking people, like, how did they feel towards, you know, their friends who were struggling with mental health? And a lot of people were saying they felt really helpless or um, a lot of people were saying not, not anger, but more frustration towards that they couldn't help them. What would you say to people who, you know, want to, want to support their friends, want to be there for them, but don't really know how to do that? I think there's so many young people I meet who are just so fantastic to their friends Um really caring and really wanting to be there for for them um and that can be really tough if you've got a friend who is struggling um and I think that's really a a common feeling I would say that don't feel like you've got to take it all on yourself it's a really it's a 
really, really tough thing to do to support somebody with mental health difficulties. And it can be very worrying and, and also it can be very risky as well. Um, so my main advice would be to talk to somebody about it, to get some help. So again, going to teachers as a first um, point of um, help. Um, there's also organisations out there like Young Minds that is really helpful. And there's um, online counselling that's called coos.com. And even if it's a friend that you're worried about, it's still a really useful way to go and, and seek out that help. But yeah, I would say don't take it all on yourself. It's it's too much. Um, and sort of linked to that, I would say that I would never promise a friend complete confidentiality. So, you know, obviously you want to keep friends secrets and, and let them be able to trust you. But there's some things that are too big. So I would always let a friend know that that although they can absolutely trust in you, that if you felt that they needed um, help because they weren't safe, then you would have to tell somebody about that so I'm I'm talking about really if a friend was self-harming or if a friend said that they were thinking about suicide that's just um, too much for one person to keep another person safe. So what advice would you actually give to someone who's come to the conclusion that they do need that external support it's quite a daunting thing to look at objectively so where would they start? I think if it is a young person I think always a great place to start is teachers um, because Teachers do really know um, young people really well um, and they also have all the links to other services and other places to go. So I would really hope that every child or student has at least one teacher that they can go to. A lot of schools will have um, a special educational needs coordinator or they'll have somebody who's in charge of pastoral support a lot of schools actually have counsellors as part of their school now as well. So there's there should be somebody in, in the school that you can go to. Um, and obviously, I guess parents, I've kind of forgotten as well that parents um, are a good place to start as well. And I think they, teachers as well, would know when it needs to go to somebody else. Uh, we get a lot of referrals from GPs and GPs obviously are really helpful, know a lot about mental health as well. I personally feel that sometimes teachers know the young person better, but if a young person didn't feel comfortable going to a teacher, sometimes people don't want the school to know about the difficulties they have, then I would say um, talk to your parents and go to the GP. And in terms, it can be a very daunting process, but you're not going to be judged in any way. People are going to be there to work with you and to ask what you want to change. Um, and you'll be part of that process. So when, you know, someone feels like they don't have someone in school that they can go to and they want to speak to their parents about their mental health, how would you say that someone should like approach this conversation? Because I know that a lot of children feel like they don't want to scare their parents into like making it not a bigger deal than it, they would think in their own mind, but like kind of blowing out of proportion. They just kind of want to let them know how they're feeling. How should they approach that conversation with them? So I think just being honest, really. Yeah. And um, it's really understandable that you're going to worry about worrying somebody else. I think that parents' jobs are there to take on that worry and to um, manage it for children. That's part of the job of being a parent. Yeah. So 
there shouldn't as a child you shouldn't you're not the one who should look after your parents you shouldn't protect them from things they're there to support protect love and look after you um and I think just yeah just be honest about it let them find a time when it's quiet and you've got their full attention can be so difficult these days in busy households where people are working from home and their siblings and things like that maybe ask to go on a drive with them or go on a walk so you haven't got that awkward thing of sat face to face and got somebody staring at you it can sometimes be helpful to have those talks where you're both doing something else at the same time so you're not having to look face to face and just say what the things are that you would like to change or what the things are that you'd like to be different if you have done any of the the you know having a look at things or talk to friends or talk to teachers say what other people have thought and if you've got any ideas about what you'd like to do next, then say. But if not, then just say, I just want some help with this and I don't know what to do. Yeah. Or sometimes it's you just want to talk and you don't necessarily want the solution. And I think that can be annoying for a lot of the young people I work with when their parents want to come up with a solution and solve everything. And with mental health difficulties or with emotions and emotional well-being, there's not always an immediate answer. Sometimes just having somebody talk and hear and acknowledge and let you know, yep, they hear you and they hear how tough it is and they're there for you can be just as important without that lots of solutions. So like, do you have a message for the parents who might be listening with, you know, children who might suffer from mental health? What would you say to them? Keep lines of communication open. Make sure you have that time each day with a child where Again, you know, doing those kinds of things where you're doing an activity together or or, um, have those opportunities to start conversations. Thank you so much, Caroline. So do you have any additional comments you'd like to add before the end? There's an organisation called CAMS Youth Advisors. It's called SIA for short. And they work with our um, user and participation group, user voice participation group. And they... um, work they're all young people who have either had mental health difficulties or they've been seen by cams or currently being seen by cams and they work to make cam services better for young people so if there are any young people who would like to get involved um whether you've had a good experience or a bad experience um then please do we need to have young people's voices in our services to make them the best they can be and to make them the right sort of service that young people want will find helpful and want to come to Thank you so much, Caroline, for the interview. And we'll make sure to link all the resources in the description of this podcast. Thank you again to Caroline for that interview. I think that was so profound and I really hope that the points strike truth to some of you. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow our Instagram at opinionated and underrated. The rest of our social medias are in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as that is the only way the podcast can be pushed out for more people to hear. Follow us on Spotify and sources and stats as always are in the description. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.